This morning we're going to talk about uh, questions and some of that other matter. And if you want to, go here to Socrative.com, go to the student login, 50168. That's it right there. You can type it. I'm just curious. We've been uh, looking at the notion of questions that matter. And I have here uh, a question, a couple of questions here. If you go to Socrative, what's a question that you were asked or was asked of you? You don't have to say it out loud. I know only extroverts will do this. Introverts are going to say, you know, I remember doing a a lesson one time. I said, now, how many of y'all are introverts? And all the hands went up and I said, not possible, you know. Those are extroverts who want to talk. And uh, so, I'm an introvert, I'm an... No, that doesn't happen like that. So, so go to soccer there. I'm just curious, there's a question uh, that was asked of you at one point that really made a difference in your life. It doesn't have to be heavy or could be uh, uh, any number of things. But as you're doing that, I want you to go to soccer We're going to be talking about this topic here today, questions that matter. Questions that matter. And you know, some questions don't uh, matter that much. Uh, I was uh, thinking of this question. Why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways? <clears throat> you ever think about that? Lay, lay awake at night. Yeah. Here's, here's one. <clears throat> here's, one. Uh, here's one that I, I, I do. What, does o- what is OK short for? No. <clears throat> When you say to somebody, okay, okay, what is that short for? No, what is it short for? Here's what I found out. This is fascinating. It really, in the 1840s, newspapers in Boston were famous for misspelling words and took kind of credit for it. It was spelled, misspelled in the 1840s, O-L-L, correct, O-L-L, correct, and deliberately done so in Boston newspapers in the 1840s. It was then used by the Democrats for their candidate, Martin Van Buren, for old kinderhook. I don't know what that means, <clears throat> but that's its etymology. That's, how it come, that's what it comes from. I never, I never thought about it. Never knew it because I didn't what? Ask the question. I didn't ask the question. Yeah, right, <clears throat> right. Now, I, yeah, <clears throat> maybe you didn't care. I, I care about things like these. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Here, I, I have sort of an assignment while you're looking at this, and if you're on soccer, then that gives you some time. Uh, I just want to encourage you. I, you know, we, uh, there are lots of things going on in our world that are just wiping us out, and we've had a, a terrible week. I just want to encourage you. Becky and I did this last night. We watched it and cried, okay? Go on YouTube and Google, who's on first? <laughs> Abbott and Costello. Uh, that's a question I wanted to ask. <laughs> I wanted to show that video, but I said, it's just too ridiculous. But if you want to laugh, if you need some way to laugh and kind of get some of the pressure of the week off of you, uh, that would be an incredible uh, uh, experience. Um, So uh, some people are are answering this question. What's a question that was asked you that impacted your life? Uh, Somebody said, here's a question. What's the purpose of your being? That's a heavy question, isn't it? What's the purpose of your being? Uh, when I think of that, I think of the important, you know, Plato said to be. No, <clears throat> that was Caesar. That, 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 oh, that was Shakespeare. <clears throat> yeah, that was Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, King, uh, to be and then to do. You know, that, that, that's the order. You know, what's, what's, what's your being? But to be, to do. Then Aristotle said, no, that was wrong. It's to do the creature being, right? Uh, 
And Sinatra figured it all out. Doobie, doobie, doo. So that was his. See, this is why I shouldn't do this. <laughs> right? This is why I should. This is off the cuff. That, right. Uh, question. Somebody said, uh, will you marry me? That probably changed their life. You know? uh, what other, here's another good one. Here's another good one. Where did I come from? You know? Oklahoma. But no. <laughs> Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. That uh, So, uh, you know, the idea of question, that I've had some questions asked me uh, that have changed my life. I'll, I'll give you a real quick one. We're going to get going here because we're dealing with this question that matters. Uh, years ago, I was a pastor in 1983 back in, that sounds like a long time ago now, you know? I know. My students, I tell them I have shoes older than them. In 1983, I was, uh, was pastor in a church in Houston and... Um, uh, we'd had a guy at our church named Dr. Enrique Cepeda. He, Dr. Cepeda works for the university now, had been a wonderful pastor in Mexico City at a Presbyterian church and had planted other churches. <clears throat> and in and, and Enrique's life, he's in his maybe, I think he's about 72 now. Uh, Enrique has discipled over 1,000 people, and they've planted over 160 churches around the world. He meets with guys right now at 530 in the Capitol Hill area Every day, just about discipling. So we're, he, he, I had known him for a long time in my family. We're driving to the airport after a meeting he'd held our church. And uh, <clears throat> so we're driving along. And Enrique asked this question. Now, I'm the pastor. You shouldn't ask pastors these kind of questions. I'm the pastor of the church, and I'm driving to the airport. And he said to me, Cliff, what's your job? Well, first of all, I thought that's kind of a dumb question. You know, I'm a pastor, you know, <clears throat> I do what people tell me. No, that's not true. I, <clears throat> I said to him, I said, uh, Dr. Cepeda, my job is to preach and study and lead and care for people. And he said, that's not basically it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Cliff, your job <clears throat> as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, for you to be working with people to equip them so that they get in the ministry. That's the pastor's role. It's found in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. That that's a pastor's job. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, I don't want to bring up football too much here, but <clears throat> it's... <clears throat> no, but one, one guy said, what is a football It's a football game. It's, it's 80,000 people who desperately need exercise... <laughs> watching 22 people who desperately need to rest, right? That's the church sometimes, right? And I will never forget when Dr. Cepeda said that to me. It changed my life. It, it, it literally made me say, wait a minute. My, my life is not defined by activity. My life has to be defined that I'm equipping others to do the work of ministry. And that question changed my life. So the questions that matter, we've been dealing with that. And one of the things uh, that we dealt with was the idea of if there's a God, that was the first question we answered. If you don't listen, we've recorded them. The second one is, if you will, then what is this God like? If there is a God, what is this God like? Now, as I think about this uh, uh, idea of God, I, I'll just tell you in my experience of life, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that 
there are lots of ideas about God out there, as you might imagine. There, you know, you can go on the web or you can go and look around. There's, there's all kinds of ideas about God. And, and I would suggest that in my own life, I told you last week, that, that, there, that my, my life's challenge has been to, to get my, my view of God in, more in focus clearly. Because uh, for a good deal of my life, I think I had a distorted view of God. Now, I'll show you this picture again here. This is the idea of a, dis, uh, or uh, let's start with A, <clears throat> the idea of distortions. The problem with a distorted view of God. The problem <clears throat> with a distorted view of God is this, this picture here. <clears throat> we saw it, it hurts my eyes to look at it, <clears throat> but we know that's what? We know it's a car. We know the color is white. What model is it? Can't tell. <clears throat> so here's the problem now. Here's the problem with a distortion. Here's the problem with a distortion. If we have a distorted view of God, there's enough truth to be dangerous. We know that's a car, we, but we don't know much about it, its model, its make, its year. And so as a consequence, the problem with a distortion or a distorted view is there is some truth there, but that truth has been muddied or the truth of it, if you will, has become a problem for us to see. And I've discovered, at least in my own life and in work with other people, that people often need some time to get some clarity about their view of God. It isn't that it's completely wrong. We know that's a car. We know it's a white car. But that there is a need to get some clarity, uh, if you will. And I've just discovered in the so many years I've been in ministry or working with students or people that this is a question that sometimes doesn't ever get asked. Is your view of God, is my view of God, clearly not distorted? Is it not? Is it, is it, or is it distorted in some way? And, and I want to give you a quote here. It's on your, on your sheet there. The, this is one of the quotes that I read years ago that stopped me in my tracks in seminary and made me say, okay, I've got to spend some time in this. And here it is. It's from a guy named William Temple. He used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I'll help you fill these words in, but it says, if your conception of God is radically false, then the more devout you are, the worse it will be for you. See, the word devout means what? Serious, committed. In other words, if our view of God's mix, mixed up, the more devout you are, the worse it is. Watch here. You're opening your soul to be molded by something base. You had much better be an atheist. This guy was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, wrote lots of books in the 60s and 70s and uh, just a remarkable intellect. And he, that, that quote there got me on a journey to say, is my view of God accurate enough to not be false and, and distorted or out of balance? Out of balance. Uh, I, I can tell you this, that in, in some of the distortions that I've seen, I grew up, as I told you last week, I grew up in a church where God's holiness and righteousness was so emphasized, I lived under the sword of Damocles. Anybody go look that up this week? Anybody go look that up? About this king and invited and has to eat dinner with this sumptuous meal and all these wonderful things to eat. But there's a sword suspended, a huge sword, razor sharp, suspended by one horsehair. That's a wonderful way to eat a meal, isn't it? <laughs> you know? I mean, see, you know, that was such a picture of my existence. The, the con I heard all this good news stuff about God, 
But I lived with this sense of, it's going to drop any minute. A friend of mine told me that he lived with the idea that he was hanging on the side of a mountain like this, and God was right there going, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the conflicted understanding of God that that, that creates the, the distortion. So you may have grown up in a, in, a, in a tradition where God's holiness or righteousness was so emphasized, that's all you got. You just were scared to death of him. Now, there's another feature of this distortion that, that, that I've discovered over the years, and that is that people have grown up maybe in a church or a tradition where all God is is forgiving and will be done with it. Uh, you know, um, where, where it doesn't matter what you do. You, know, you kind of do whatever you want to do. I think, I think my church found out about that church and went this way, <laughs> right? Or that tradition that, that just made it, well, you know, is, you know, God will God'll forgive you. And that's true, but that, but that notion of just nothing matters because God loves everybody and God cares about everybody, that's a distortion. So, so the idea of trying to find where, where do we keep people from, from living a certain way where they just act like nothing matters, or like I, I use this illustration in, in my class. In Oklahoma, if you ever see them plant a little tree, uh, it's always got two wires on it right? And a little thing around the middle. One of those wires is pointed toward Texas. <laughs> and one of those wires is pointed toward Kansas. Because the wind around here is coming from where? Kansas or Texas, right? Now, why is that wire on that little tree with enough tension to hold it straight? Think about that. There's got to be some tension in here. See, there's some tension here. There, that wire has got to have enough tension this way and this way. So the tree grows what? Straight, right? So there's some tension here. There's some tension here we're having to deal with. So I want to I wanna, I wanna work through some of these matters. So number one, let's, let's go. Here we go. This thing will move. The reasons for our distortions with our view of God. Why do we have them? I teach this to a lot of uh, freshmen at the university. And I tell them I wish somebody would have walked me through this when I was 18 uh, because uh, it would have made a difference. Here, here's, here's one way that we know that are through significant relationships early in life. Significant relationships early in life are parents, grandparents, authority figures when we're young. They have a pretty powerful impact on the way we see reality. They have a fairly profound effect on us. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, God often sounded like my dad with a deeper voice, you know, and louder. Um, that, that the idea of these significant relationships early in life. Uh, Henry Cloud and, uh, wrote a book called How People Grow. And he made the observation that early in life, he's, now, he's a psychiatrist, psychologist, you know, MD doctor. He says this, he says, Early in life, because of those relationships, we learn to either accept ourselves or reject ourselves early. There's a lot of research in this area. I'll just tell you, James Dobson has done research. Yale University did a, a research project in this area about the profound effect of significant relationships early in life. Now, I, you know, I tell my students all the time, nobody's trying to harm you. Parents are doing the best they do, could. You know, I tell my students all the time, you know, your parents used to be cool till they had you. And uh, <laughs> then they got uncool. 
because you're not that much fun to be around. You know, you're a pain in the neck. I see a few uh, glaring looks here. uh, so, I mean, everybody's doing the best they know how to do, all right? I mean, that, we're, not, we're not assessing. We're trying to uh, understand here that, that the idea that these significant relationships early in life have a profound effect on us. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want to tell you how you can kind of begin, if you want to, to dig around in this. How, how maybe your view of God may have been affected. See there on the bottom here of your sheet there? I think it's there. The assessing the impact of mottos. Mottos are this idea, things that your family said over and over again. Kind of a, an, what we call an ethos, a, a, a kind of the way your life lived. You know, my dad loved him. I, I, was, I was telling somebody I had a dream about him. that I hardly ever dreamed about my dad, but it was wonderful. It's like we had a, got to have a talk. My dad said this to me almost every day of my life. I expect to see more people addicted, to, or I, I expect to see people who are addicts to all kinds of things, drugs, alcohol, all kinds of things. You know, he's talking about all this kind of crazy. He said, in heaven, then I do lazy people. Laziness was something my dad went after every day. He would not allow it. Uh, and that motto that I heard over and over and over was one of those Things that got lodged in me that I thought the worst thing in the world to be would be lazy. I, I, I thought, you know, that uh, it, it was a terrible thing. And my dad had, a, had in his own mind ascribed it to worse than sin. And, and it, you know, it's kind of all mixed up there. But I heard that over and over and over. I heard, I heard another one that my dad told me. Do the thing you fear. You know what? That didn't help. <laughs> it really didn't. I don't know if I just wasn't trying hard enough, but uh, do the thing you fear. And for some crazy reason, I had lots of fears as a kid. My dad told I didn't know this. He said, Cliff, you didn't speak to your six months old. I've been making up for it. <laughs> really, he said, you were, you, you were, you were a frightened little child. Uh, we lived in New Orleans. And my dad was in the Navy, and when a car would go by and backfire, remember some of y'all, I mean, fuel injection, cars used to backfire. When that happened, my mother and grandmother hit the floor and said, somebody's shooting at us. Now, in 1955, there weren't that many drive-by shootings unless you were in the mafia. (laughs) Right? That's the kind of home I grew up in. Fear, terror, anxiety. And so my dad said, do the thing you fear. I translated that into my life, and when I lived in Houston, when I was a pastor, uh, that's what I heard. And so I went at night on lots of occasions to uh, bars where there were all African-American people, nobody looked like me, or I went to bars with all Hispanic, or I went to look up outlaw motorcycle gangs in Houston, where there's a few. (laughs) Why? I was afraid. Had to do the thing I feared. Had to. That was deep in me. My dad had said that. You know, that's, that's, that's the law and the gospel at my house. So one is I didn't know how to play. Still don't. When I play, I get real serious about it. So don't invite me to play games, okay? 
it turns into work. So don't, don't do that unless you want to find out I'm a competitor. I like to win. <laughs> so I, I've had terrible trouble with learning to play. And the other one is, it's the other one is, I have to do the thing I fear. This idea of motto, you ought to give some time to it. Now, again, not to blame, but to think. How could these mottos have affected the way I see God? Anybody? Anybody? I, I didn't ask you that. But anybody? I know an extrovert around here somewhere. Uh, anybody remember something you heard as a motto in your home? Said you could. That's great. Never fearful. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, she said her dad had for the recording that her dad had said you can do anything you want to. She said she had no fear, which didn't wasn't that good at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, it's not what you are that keeps you from doing things; it's what you think you're not. Interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's the that's the perfectionistic motto. Yeah, when, when students say, say, if it's worth doing, it, if it's worth doing, do it right. I say, if it's worth doing, do it. <laughs> Jerry, get over it. <clears throat> yeah. So Jerry, I want to chew on you here just a little bit. So Jerry, did you ever let me just did you ever have any issues about was God empathetic toward you or sympathetic toward you when you had a problem? Hmm. Interesting. He was. You're saying he wasn't, or he was. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, Brian. Yeah. Stop hitting your brother. Stop hitting your brother. That's good counsel. That's good. That's good counsel. We want to stop that. Yeah. Show up early, stay late. <clears throat> so, yeah. Well, it would just be interesting to think through some of these because sometimes these things have a way of making their way into the way we relate to God. The sort of the way like the perfectionistic, if it's worth doing, do it right. Or I, I've heard people say this other one, you made your bed, you're going to now. Right. That person's going to have a very difficult time understanding grace. Right. They're not going to understand grace. If you made your bed and you're going to sleep and there's no sense in which grace is part of this. Or if it's worth doing, you got to do it right. How many of you, don't answer this out loud, but how many of you have been affected by that? So if you decide you're going to read and pray, read your Bible and pray for 20 minutes in the morning and you sleep in a little bit and you don't do it and you only have 10 minutes, then what do you don't do? You don't do it. Why? Because you can't do it right. So these are, these are, these are significant matters. They're not to blame. They're trying to understand. So some of our distorted views of God come from these mottos. Another way it comes is this, and real quick, <clears throat> is uncritical reflection on life. Uncritical reflection on life. I, you know, you don't, you don't have to agree with me, obviously. <clears throat> um, but people blame God for a lot of things. <laughs> and people try to give an answer to the sometimes unanswerable by blaming God. In other words, my students tell me they come to school, they come from churches, and they tell me that everything happens for a reason. And I go, yeah, and some of them are stupid. <laughs> some of them are outrageous. 
right? Uh, This uh, not reflecting a lot that, wait a minute, where God's not responsible for everything that happens, right? God's not responsible for all the activities and actions and things that happen in this world. That's, I mean, that's, I've said it this way. Now, this is my, I'm going to show you something here in, in the Bible that may back this up. I, I'm willing to say, and again, the thoughts and opinions of the teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across these community churches, elders, or leadership. I really don't believe that God is in control. I think he's in charge. Now, I make this distinction here. He's not in control of what people are doing. If he is, he's doing a bad job. He's not in control of people. He's in charge in the sense that he's determined the limits to human freedom. He's determined the limits of human ability. He's determined how things will be directed in the end. He's not gone, but he's not in control. He's not, he's not making things happen. Every, every, you know, the guy that killed people this past week. God's not in control of that. He's not control. He's not in control of that person. I say to my students this way. You really want God to be in control? Okay, he's going to make you do everything you're supposed to do. You want to try that? You don't have a choice. He's going to make you do what you ought to do. Here, here's an interesting passage. Let me just go, go to your table of contents in the book of Jeremiah. There are several others if you're interested. If you're interested. Here it is in Jeremiah. I'll go to my, it's a 7.10. 7.10. This is uh, the word of God here to, from Jeremiah about a particular situation in Israel that has always fascinated me. Here we go. Jeremiah, I should probably tell you the chapter, right? <laughs> three, that'd be nice. <clears throat> chapter three. <clears throat> What'd I say? That's the page number. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's the page number. That was a test. Y'all did well. Yeah, 710, uh, uh, Jeremiah 3. Yeah, this is, a, this is a passage. Just this. And all I'm saying is this. Be careful about having an answer for every tragedy. That you can just plug this in every time. Notice this in chapter 3 of Jeremiah, verse 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? Now, this is the northern tribes. Israel is the name of those northern tribes. She went up on every high hill and upon every green tree, and she's been a harlot there. I thought, this is God speaking, after she had done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. Huh? God said, what? I thought Judah would see what Israel was doing and would return to me. But what happened? They didn't. See, there are several wills in this universe. There's God's will. There's the devil's will. And there's your will. And they're all connected up. This is one of those verses when you read it, you go, what? What? He said, he said I, I thought that after she saw what would happen here, they'd return to me. And they didn't. 
So all I'm suggesting here is this, is sometimes our distorted views of God are the result of us claiming that something is God's will or something he did when it obviously isn't. Some tragedy, some difficulty, some terrible thing. The devil is the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, not God. He comes that we might have life. Now, I know this is a little troubling because there's a dialectical tension here. God has not just thrown the universe out here and let it go. But he has created, as C.S. Lewis says, he is so great, he's created creatures that can resist him and are and will. So this idea of it may be that we've connected God to some morally compromised situations instead of saying, wait a minute, it's not, it's not God's will this happened. God didn't cause this. God didn't make this happen. I, I've probably told you before, this person I met in Louisiana years ago, and I'm not trying to say my experience is all, but a guy came to me one time after I did a Bible study and, and uh, <clears throat> said to me later, he said, you know, I used to be in the pastor, used to be in the ministry for years ago. And I said, yeah. And he said, and then I got out. And he said, uh, I kind of got away from the Lord and all like that. And he said, and, uh, you know, I knew the Lord would be back in the ministry. And he said this to me, he said, and then God drowned my nine-year-old son to get me back in the ministry. Now, my mouth doesn't usually get ahead of my brain. But I said, that's not possible. You're not that important. The audacity for you to say that God did that. It's a terrible tragedy. It was an accident. God didn't kill your son. He's not going around saying, let's see if we can find a nine-year-old we can drown to get this guy back in the ministry. I'm just saying, think about sometimes what we say about God. Think about the implications of them. I don't, I don't get all this. I don't understand all of this. I'm just telling you, it's a struggle. It's a constant engagement for me to be able to say, God, help me think this through in a way that honors you and is consistent with who I know you to be. Okay. Here we go. Here's some of the, I know I've opened up more can of worms than I can see it in people's eyes. They're like, it's okay. That's my job to stir it up a little bit, right? I tell students all the time, don't come to class and think I'm going to tell you what you already know. Just give me $1,500 and we'll be done. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what you already know. Now, here I want to suggest some distortions here, some, some ones that are fairly common. And at the end of this um, uh, outline, there are some resources if you're interested. Some of this comes from these resources and some of these matters. But here's the one that I find often, and I've done throughout uh, the years, is an overvalued conscience. An overvalued conscience. Um, the conscience is something that most theologians will say is, <clears throat> excuse me, part of what it means to be created in the image of God. There's a sense of right and wrong, perhaps, that, that people have. There's a, a sense of, that, that's where C.S. Lewis in his Mere Christianity says, when people say, that's not right, he says, where'd you get that idea? You know, where'd you get that idea? There's something innate. But one of the things that we do know, and if you're interested in that, this idea of the conscience, it's found in Romans 2, 14 to 15. Romans 2, 14 to 15. Is, is that the conscience, what we understand, can be trained and malformed. The conscience can be trained and malformed. 
In fact, I meet people, I bet you do too, who, because they're relying on their conscience, they're overvaluing it, they're making it the standard, that don't believe that certain things are wrong. Right? They say, well, I don't think it's wrong. I don't feel like, I don't, you know, I don't feel like it's wrong. Okay, that's possible, but it could be because your conscience is malformed. It could be because your conscience has been trained to believe that's okay, when in fact it isn't. So the conscience is a malleable, if you will, matter in the human psyche. <clears throat> that it can be trained, it can be malformed. And Dr. here's what James Dobson says about this. Um, a person's conscience is largely the gift from their parents' training and instruction. A person's conscience is largely the result or the gift of their parents' training, instruction, and experience. When I think about this, I think about it. Now, I've told you before, you know, when Marty, when Marty uh, says, you know, around here lots of times, he says, you know, we're a family. I'm an old guy. And when I hear the word family, the first thing that goes across my mind is the face of Charles Manson. <laughs> I'm serious when I hear, we're just a family. <clears throat> Remember? That's what, that's what Manson called him, right? I'm not saying that's who we are. I'm not saying, I'm just saying I, I have to kind of rework that. Um, you know, Manson, by some assessments, is a psychopath. You ought to study his life a little bit. Uh, Charles Manson was uh, born to a lady named Kathleen Maddox in Cincinnati. She's 16 years old. She was a prostitute and a drug addict. And when he was born, on his birth certificate, here's his name. No name Maddox. She didn't know what to name him. He was born and raised in an incredibly wild, sinful, crazy environment. It's told the story that his mother was so addicted to drugs and alcohol while trying to raise this little boy that one time she sold him for a pitcher of beer to another man. His uncle finds out about it and rushes there and rescues him. By the age of 13, he had been in and out of reform school. He had stolen cars. He was in Utah. His life is one absolute disaster after another. Now, I'm not, I'm not excusing this. I'm simply saying, here's a person whose conscience, for all practical purposes, was trained and malformed at an age that brought about huge destruction. The conscience. And so this idea of, of an overvalued conscience. I, I meet students all the time. One of the things they learn when they come to our school is some of the things they thought were wrong and they felt were wrong aren't. <laughs> right? Have you found that out yet? Yeah. That some of the things you thought as a younger person or as a new Christian that you thought were wrong, they're not. <laughs> right? I was raised to think that, that dancing was a sin. Really? I, you know, I don't know if y'all knew that. That's why I started going to the Methodist church. They let them dance. <laughs> Man, I found I want another religion. <laughs> right? And I've also had students say, and I, I found that there were things that I didn't think were wrong that are. Right? Why? Because the conscience can't be trusted completely. It can be malformed and trained. And so the idea is when we overvalue it, Sometimes people are just driven to distraction. In criminology, they say, you were talking about the 
They don't do anything if they think it's wrong. Right. So yeah. that guy thought somehow in his twisted mentally ill mind that what he was doing was okay. Like people don't do something that they think is wrong. Right. But there are all kinds of wrongs committed. Exactly. Yeah, she's saying because people don't typically do something that's criminal, that's wrong. So I want to ask you, go to your table of contents, find the book of Hebrews. I want to, I want to walk through this just a minute about this overvalued conscience. 1148. That's not chapter 11. That's a <laughs> page 1148. Thank you. <clears throat> Go to chapter 12. I wish my students listened that well. This has always been fascinating because the overvalued conscience, I, I'm just telling you, I meet people and students and others who their conscience is wearing them out. They are constantly under this burden. If they feel something's wrong or they sense something wrong, it's a terrible burden. And then I meet students who seem like I say, hey, have you ever had a conscious thought in your brain? <laughs> you know, th th this idea, the conscience. So in Hebrews chapter 12, I just want to look at this here for a moment to, to talk about this idea of the overvalued conscience. Look at chapter 12. And I'm, I'm going to just take a little bit of time here when it says in verse 4, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin. And you've not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Here's what I want to dig out. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or faint when you are rebuked by him. Can I tell you, it looks like to me, I, I, this is what I've noticed. The, the distorted conscience usually go, can go in one of two directions. The first one is it's catch up too insensitive notice where it says don't regard lightly the discipline of the lord this word here discipline means correction direction and and the idea of taking it lightly the term here carries the idea of not taking it seriously and it seems to me that there are people who their distorted concept of God is because they take things too lightly or too insensitive. They're, they're just like running through life, rolling and blowing through life. That, 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 that it's just too insensitive. I went to high school with a guy. I won't call his name for fear somebody's related to him. You know, they talk about, his name was Keith. And this guy, we played football together. And he liked to hurt people. He really did. He got in so much trouble, the, the school district said either go to school or the army. Which is it? We were all voting for the army. Go army. Go to the army. Go to the army, Keith. Go to the army. This guy seemed impervious, if you will, to any kinds of empathy or sympathy or concern. And what he did, he didn't care about. This is this idea of being too insensitive. Have you met people like this? Jerry Regeer, I don't know if y'all remember Jerry. Jerry works for Water Force, still some. And Jerry used to be here, and he worked for Frank Keating, uh, governor back then. And Jerry came and made a presentation at Crossings one time about uh, some of the matters in juvenile justice. And Jerry came and said, we're needing people to help us because people are coming through the juvenile system. And when they come through, the DOJ or Department of Justice is now seeing them that early and calling them super predators. 
it was kind of scary. He said, uh, we're building prisons. We're trying to get this taken care of. We, it's a scary thing that these juvenile offenders are coming up and, and some of them are, are, you know, this is what he said, super pre predators. He, he, it was interesting. He said, uh, there's a profile on these offenders. And he said, one is they come out of situations where there's no hope, no hope at all. They don't ever hope to live past 25, 26, you know, whatever. There's no hope. But he said, this is fascinating. They have this other characteristic. They have no conscience. I thought, now that's a little scary. This idea that the conscience can get to the point where they don't have one, where it's too insensitive. Now, let's flip this up, switch here. Because it says there, look here at the second part. Verse 5. And don't what? What? Faint. What's that mean? What does that mean? Give up. Give up. The idea there, the word faint here, the idea of give up. Nor give up. This is the conscience that's too sensitive. That is just picking up all there is about guilt and fear and anxiety. This is the conscience that's too sensitive. I, I've, I've sort of wrestled with this one some. I, I, again, growing up in that home I did with some of the mottos I heard, I've wrestled with this one, that my conscience was too sensitive. I kind of was thought, uh, brought up to believe uh, that, you know, if you, ever, if you ever felt bad about something, God was trying to talk to you. I, I found that that isn't always true. <laughs> that, that, that being too sensitive here can be as bad as the matter. So he says, don't faint when you're reproved by him. What are the characteristics of that? These are people that kind of go through life with a sense of guilt, with just a sense of undoneness. Sometimes we call that shame. They just have this sense of shame. There's something wrong with me. There's something unpleasable about me. And so when I'm reproved or I'm corrected, there's a sense of just give up. Becky said to me one time when we were first married, uh, well, I won't tell you that, but she said something else too. <laughs> no, there were several things she said, like, what have I done? <laughs> um, she said to me one time, we were in Texas, so there was a Dairy Queen we were at. And uh, she said to me one time, she goes, Cliff, uh, I just at times, when I fail or sin, feel like giving up. And it just struck me at that point, I, you know, I hadn't given a lot of thought about this, but I said, Becky, who do you think wants you to quit? And she said, the devil. And I said, what are you doing listening to him? You know, this personality type, this person that's too sensitive, they're listening to these tapes or these words or these thoughts in their head. And they're taking it too, too hard. It, it, I, think, I think the key would be is if, you get corrected or you fail and you feel like giving up, you are overvaluing your conscience. This is you. You're, you're, you're giving your conscience too much credit. Instead of what does God's word tell me about this? What is God's word to, to, to inform my conscience and, and bring it to some, some balance here? And I'll tell you what. My this is just my personal experience. I've met more people like this than the first group. I've met lots more people in this group whose conscience is too sensitive. Yes? Cliff, I was raised in the same type of church you were in, and I think 
God's court, yes. You know, he's just. Yes. She's saying the church she grew up in was kind of like the one I grew up in. Of course, she's from Nebraska, you know, aren't you? I was raised in East Texas. Oh, in East Texas. Oh, okay. Boy, I, I didn't know. Okay. That, that, they, that, that they forgot that God's core being is love. I want to show you this again. You just, D, that's great. I think where the problem is is this. That we have talked about God like this. He's love and he's just. He is, uh, he is uh, merciful or he's omniscient and he's present. These are all put on equal footing. And that's where we get confused about God. He's this and that. Oh, I don't, don't forget now, he is too just, you know. Or, or is he like this? And his justice is the result of his love. And his, uh, and his uh, omniscience is the result. Of, these aren't equal. This is who God is. This is not who he is. These aren't equal. They're not in conflict. If this is true, they're in conflict with each other all the time. God is having to kind of conflict with himself. Instead of saying anytime justice is exercised, it's out of love. Anytime omniscience is exercised, it's out of love. Anytime uh, 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 transcend, any, any of those attributes we talk about God, they always come out of this center. And that's what you're saying. I think you're right. So, so this idea of God as love, as God, as a, let, let me tell you about my, Nephew, I'll just tell you real quick. My, my nephew, Mark, who died a few years ago, uh, Mark was a crazy man. He got busted out of the military because he got them all smoking dope. Uh, he stole uh, six bass boats one night on Cave Run Lake in Moorhead, Kentucky. And woke up and wanted to know how he got them all. He was good. <laughs> uh, he was perhaps the meanest human being I ever met in my life. I didn't like him. He was mean. He, he grabbed a guy one time after a football game and ch started choking and said, if you don't give me your watch, I'll kill you right here. And he would. I saw Mark pick up a, one end of a telephone pole and move it. He's a monster. He'd been raised by a preacher, my uncle, been in our family, been around us, and was as full bore for the devils anybody you ever met. He came to Christ. He was radically changed and came to school here at Mid-America for a while. And we talked, and I said this to him, I, I, I really, because this is Mark, two cents, what, what was all that behavior was the shield, this idea of his too sensitive a conscience. I said this to Mark with trepidation. I said, Mark, because of your conscience like that, would it be true that you had more peace serving the devil than when you were trying to serve Jesus? And he said, absolutely. Now something's wrong here, <laughs> right? He had more peace serving the devil than serving Jesus. And I said, Mark, we have to work on this. And so for the next few years, he and I, we had constant conversations working through this to say, Mark, you've got a distorted 
view of God here. This, this, is, this is the idea that God is against you, not for you. So I just, I just want to say this. So what's the answer to that? Here's the answer to the, to the overvalued conscience. Renew your mind. Romans 12.1 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable of God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to ask you this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Taking every thought. When, you, when your conscience gets activated... When you think something's right or wrong, whenever you get this movement in your soul, what should you do? Take it to the Word of God and say, okay, where does this line up or not line up with the Word of God? The renewing of the mind, the bringing the mind to, if you will, to heal. Heal. Stop right here. To bring it to the mind to say, whatever I'm thinking, whatever the impulse is here, there has to be some consistency with what God said. Here's another one real quick. We'll be finished today. I love this one, this distortion. The 110% God. This is the God that was created by coaches. <laughs> what is this God like? This is the God that no matter how much, and it's also I put the Pharaoh God. This is the God that no matter how much you do, it is never what? Y'all met him? No matter what you do. No matter what you do, it's not enough. You got to give 100. I tell my students, by the way, there's no such thing as 110%. There's 100%. That's what coaches are trying to get you to do. But this notion that God is this relentless person, being that no matter how much you do, there's always more to do. It'll kill you. I tell you what happens. This idea that no matter how much I do, God is never quite satisfied, never quite finished. It has a basic flaw in it, and this is the flaw, that the only thing God is interested in is your work and production. That the only thing that God really cares about is how much you get done. See, that worked well with me because my dad always talked to me about not being lazy. That one really worked with me. Man, I was a worker. I was a worker bee. But this 110% God... The basic flaw is that God is more interested in your production than he is a relationship. And you know what? In the church, if we're not careful, our own pride can get us. Ken Smith said to me one time, uh, the church had asked me to do some other things and I'd gotten busy and I was doing too much. And he said, don't let your pride take away your joy. Because, you know, in the church sometimes we pat people on the back. Atta boy, boy, you're really busy. You're really doing lots of work. Woo, boy, you, we really like you. Thank the Lord for you. It's okay to serve. But at some point, the 110% God says there's always something else to do. You know, I have, a, I have a spiritual discipline I'm trying to work with. When people ask me to do something, I try to say, I got to have 48 hours to think about it because I'm already busy. I got to have 48 hours. And they say, well, I need to an answer now. And I say, okay, no. <laughs> well, well, wait a minute. No. Right? But this 110% God, there's never enough. Now, let me tell you where this really begins to get bad. And some of y'all of us are getting there. As we get older, like I'm getting, you ever hear people say this as they get older? I don't know why the Lord's let me live so long. I can't, give me the word, 
do anything anymore. Have you ever heard, have you heard older people say this? Maybe they're infirmed or they're in their home. They can't get out. Listen, you're okay if you're in your 40s. You're not worried about this. But as we get older, when we begin to realize that our value, our worth is not in our work, but in our relationship with Him. This gets serious as we get older. Anybody have those thoughts? You had those thoughts like, I, you know, I, why was God letting me? I can't do anything anymore. You know, when you're in your 40s and 50s, you never think about this. You get in your 60s and 70s and 80s. When I was a pastor, I'd have people say to me, Pastor, I don't know why God has let me live so long. I can't do anything. Can I show you a verse here real quick? We're going to be finished. It's in 1 Corinthians. Go to your table of contents there. That's where it is. All that stuff is. 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1085. Mine? No, 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 not. That's where it starts to the page number. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's writing to the church there, and here's what he says. I'm going to just jump right into it because I don't have time. We've got to go, but what it says here in verse 9. God is faithful to whom you were called into what? What are you called to? What does he say there? What are you called to? Fellowship. Some of us think God called us to work. <laughs> Some of us think that's what God called us to. Production. I, I'm not saying that there isn't a piece of that. But here Paul said, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with Him. That's the primary calling of the follower of Jesus. The work or the service that we give is out of gratitude and thankfulness. It's out of a heart of joy that's full. That can say, I do this. I'm not having to do this. I get to do this. But if you got this God, if you got this God, the only thing he's interested in is how much work can you do? And what can you produce? And I can tell you this. I've, I've seen this because I've been in the ministry for a long time. There are a lot of ministers that when they retire have a terrible time. My own dad, I, I, I came to him after he retired and he came to Oklahoma City. I said to him, I said, now dad, you've got to get ready for something. He said, what's that? I said, you're going to get ready to be a regular person. <laughs> he went, what? I said, yeah. <clears throat> you're not going to have four or 500 people telling you that was a great sermon. You're not going to have three or 400 people trying to find you and talk to you. You're going to be just a regular person. And that's going to be difficult. Because you've defined yourself all your life by what you do. And you don't do it anymore. And nobody's asking you anymore. I've told Becky and Wayne Bolenbacher, if I ever get to that point when I get old, just beat me in the head with a hammer. And Wayne said, can we practice? <clears throat> he would. <clears throat> Wayne would practice. I, I, I just, I, I just, I just want to, we're going to go, but there are lots of people that are burdened under this. And this is not a correct view of God. It's a distortion. It'll eat your lunch. 
If you overvalue your conscience where everything you feel or think is true, if you don't take it captive, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and Romans 12, 2, where you uh, renew your mind, your conscience will wear you slick. Or if what you do is never enough, that you're constantly hearing that nagging in your head, and you've got to claim 1 Corinthians 1, 9, that God is faithful. He calls you to fellowship not work. I'll end with this. Dallas Willard said, here's the question we need to keep asking. Not what do I do, but who am I becoming? I read that every morning before I go to work. Not what I do, but who am I becoming? Let me ask this question. What if you couldn't do tomorrow? What if you couldn't do tomorrow? Would you still be in fellowship with God? Or is your identity tied up in what you do? What your performance is? So here, here's what I'm asking you to do. Those verses in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians about your conscience. And this about the 110% God out of 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to ask you to reflect on these this week and start looking. Where is this distortion in your life? Maybe for some of you it isn't. That'd be wonderful. But where is it in your life? and address it with God's Word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, Lord, I've tried the best I know how to, to communicate one of the most difficult things I've seen. And that's these distorted ideas that we picked up through life. Help us. Guide us. Direct us to have our minds and hearts changed and renewed by Your Word. Taking thoughts captive the obedience of Christ. May you be honored in our lives as we come to a greater clarity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.